As an author, there's nothing quite like sitting with a person that has read your stuff and enjoyed it and wants to just pick your brain on it. There's a real rush that comes from that and some serious wind can get put in your sails uh, as a creative writer. Now, the inverse, I think, is also true when we get to sit with someone whose book has impacted us uh, in big ways. And that's really what happened here in my next interview on The Writer's Lens, where I got to sit with Jordan Rayner, the author of Called to Create, whose book I read uh, a little over a year ago or so, and just found to be incredibly helpful and insightful. So here's my interview 16 on The Writer's Lens with Jordan Rayner, the author of Called to Create. Enjoy. All right, welcome back, listener. This is Josh J.C. Alfalto, and today I have a very special guest on The Writer's Lens. Uh, he is a speaker and author of the national bestseller, Called to Create. He is a self-described serial entrepreneur, which I will look forward to unpacking that with him a little bit later. He is the executive chairman of Threshold 360, a venture-backed tech startup that has built the world's largest library of 360-degree experiences of hotels, restaurants, and attractions. He's spoken at Harvard University, South by Southwest, and TEDx. And twice he's been selected as a Google Fellow. And if that's not enough, he has had the honor of serving in the White House under President George W. Bush. Did I mention anything that I shouldn't have, Jordan? How are you, <laughs> no, sir? That's, that's, that's fine. I mean, I don't know. The Bush thing might get me in trouble with some listeners. But, <laughs> it's all it's the White House, so who cares? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Jordan, thanks so much for connecting with me here on the Writer's yeah. Lines. Uh, yeah, happy to do it. Yeah. Thank you, you, Josh. Your, your book, Call to Create, I read yeah. a little over a year ago now. Okay. And uh, really, really enjoyed it. Great read, talking about uh, the ins and whys of how to create, and it was just awesome. And I've I've talked about you quite a bit actually on this podcast, so this is a bit of a surreal experience for me. So, yeah. so very, very cool of you to to this take will be some time. Fun. Yeah, no, I'm excited. I'm yeah. excited. I was I was telling somebody the other day. I'm like, I, I it's actually pretty rare that I talk about the process of writing. Like, it's this actually is probably the first show i've done uh where that's kind of the main subject matter so this would be like cathartic for me <laughs> so, <laughs> so be educational for me you know if nothing else so. excellent we'll roll out the couch for you we'll roll out the yeah, couch thanks. yeah thanks thank you awesome so with all that being said then uh you know i really enjoyed your book and it's all about you know learning how to innovate and create but as far as the process but let's get into jordan himself you know like what sure. is your story i mentioned sure. a lot of things that you've been doing what you've been up to yeah. and what led up to eventually writing this book so who is jordan rayner and you know how did you get to where you are today with this yeah yeah it's a good question it set it sets up some context for why i'm you know writing nonfiction. actually writing nonfiction full-time as of two and a half months ago uh, we just announced uh my deal with random house for a new book that comes out in january 2020 another non-full-length nonfiction book called master of one uh and actually that's that's a good setup for the whole conversation but let me backtrack about 10 years uh so i've spent my entire career as a serial entrepreneur basically all that means is I really love starting companies and getting them to a place where they can live without me and then leaving to go start something else. Right. Uh, which fortunately for me, that's, I, I realized a few years ago, that's essentially what publishing is, right? I mean, you, but, but with publishing, the beauty of publishing is you have one thing that you're, that you're continually getting good at over time, which is writing, but every book is a product launch, right? Every book is essentially uh, a new venture, I would argue, right? I mean, you're a lot of times you're 
positioning it for a slightly different market, right? You got to identify who that market is, bring a product uh, that meets the needs of that market uh, to bear. So I, I don't know. It's a very interesting process. But uh, historically, when I say I'm an entrepreneur, it's been mostly tech startups. So my first couple of companies were in the political and government markets. Politics was kind of my first love, hence my experience at the White House. Uh, and um, yeah, so started and sold a few ventures there. And, you know, about five, about five years ago, I was, uh, so I, I personally, so I'm a, I'm a Christian, uh, I'm a believer in, uh, what the scripture says of, of who Jesus Christ is. Uh, I know that's something you and I share, Josh. And, uh, about five years ago, I was exiting a venture. I was considering starting another one. I was pretty sure I was going to start another company. Mm-hmm. And I went to this event that was calling for church planters, uh, to go across the United States and plant churches and cities. And, um, I'm sitting there in the audience and I'm listening to them describe like who's the ideal church planter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this guy's like describing entrepreneurs. I'm like, oh my word. By, by the way, if, if you're curious, if you're really interested about the parallels between like startup life and church planting, there's a fantastic little podcast series that Gimlet produced a while back on right. church planting. Okay. Uh, on their startup podcast, it's excellent. Uh, it's really, really good. Uh, produced by this guy named Eric Menel. I was really impressed by it. Huh. And anyways, so I'm sitting there. I'm like, oh, maybe I should plant a church. And I started talking to some friends about it, and uh, you know, some some guys that were much more experienced than me and kind of further along in life. And their feedback was kind of uh, overwhelmingly similar. It was like, hey, like you are gifted. You're you're clearly passionate about entrepreneurship. Uh, you're clearly gifted at the craft. You've created a lot of value, a lot of jobs. Why do you think you should go? take those skills and apply it to something else that doesn't make any sense like don't you understand and these are people who shared my faith like don't you understand that entrepreneurship can be a means of living out your faith and 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 loving your neighbor as yourself you love your neighbors yourself when you create great products and you know whatever i was like i don't understand this at all so i, I went out and i just started interviewing people i started hmm. uh doing firsthand interviews with other christian entrepreneurs that i knew but also doing my own research so i uh I studied up on people like Arthur Guinness of the Guinness Brewing Company. A lot of people don't know that Arthur Guinness was a devout Christian oh, yeah. and oh, yeah. I, I, one of the more successful ones <laughs> of all time. Uh, you know, people like the founders of In-N-Out Burger down in Southern California uh, and Chick-fil-A and True Cathy. So doing my own research on these guys. And as I started kind of filling up a moleskin with notes from all this research and all these interviews, I was like, this is a book right it was it was very much like a collection phase of just collecting all these stories and i don't know started making the creative connections between them and realized like this is an interesting this is an interesting book uh so um i eventually turned that into my first uh traditionally published full-length nonfiction book i'd self-published two books prior to that uh but but release called to create in november of 2017 that book did very well actually continues to do very well uh we yeah. keep selling that thing Congratulations, uh so man. Yeah, thanks. Uh, it's 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 been a really really fun project, and so yeah. So right at the time I finished writing called the Craig. So you writers probably know traditional publishing world takes forever. So I finished writing it in like <laughs> August September of 2016. Uh, the book wasn't going to be out for another year, mm-hmm. and 
right after I got done uh, writing it, I, I got recruited by the board of directors to run this uh, venture-backed tech startup here in Tampa where I'm from called Threshold 360. And I said no a few times and eventually said yes just because I was like really excited about what these guys were doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I ran that venture for two and a half years up until two, almost three months ago mm-hmm. uh, when we recruited somebody, frankly, more qualified than me to run the company and take it to the next level. Uh, and so that, that was part one. But part two was – uh, I really wanted to sink my teeth into my career as a writer. I'd signed this deal with Random House, and mm-hmm. I just knew that in order to do this really, really well, uh, in order to do this most exceptionally well, I needed to dedicate pretty much all of my time and energy and focus to it. And I had a unique opportunity to do that. Most writers never get that. Most writers will always be writing a book on the side while they make money doing something else. And, I, I've been fortunate enough, you know, by no merit of my own, I legitimately believe by the grace of God alone to be able to do this work full time. So as of three months ago, I decided, yeah, okay, let's let's put all my eggs in this basket and take a risk and, you know, see what happens. So that's that's what I'm doing now. That's why I have time in the middle of the day to record podcasts yeah, like this ex- now. Exactly. That's awesome. That's an awesome story, Jordan. Now, as far as the serial entrepreneur, as yeah. far as how you kind of self-described you, yeah. um, Many people, I think, have a bit of a misconception about what entrepreneurialism actually looks like. You know, some people think it's like, well, you have a ton of time or you have no time. So is it more about like balancing different things? And, you know, like as far as when you were going to write the book, obviously, you took a ton of time to do that. But as far as this entrepreneurial aspect of it, you know, what does that actually look like? You know, how do you, you know, how do you live that out? Yeah. uh, um, Yeah. So, I mean, I think. I, I think entrepreneur entrepreneur is a term that we throw around a lot, right? I, I, it's a very sexy term in our culture today. Uh, I think maybe the only thing more attractive in our culture than being an entrepreneur is being an author. Right. <laughs> um, so, um, and you get to you claim know, to be both. So there you go. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, I think. Uh, and I think a lot of the traditional definitions of the word leave a lot to be desired. So actually, in Call to Create, I, I, I you know, somewhat. Uh, audaciously proposed a, a, a new definition for the word entrepreneur as anybody who takes a risk to create something new for the good of others, right? And I, I think when you take that definition, I think authors certainly qualify as entrepreneurs. Authors are risking uh, reputation, credibility, risking time, risking resources all the time to bring about new things. But they're not doing it for themselves, right? I would argue you're not really an author if you just write a book and keep your manuscript on a shelf. You, real artists ship, real entrepreneurs, real authors ship, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and we we do that for the good of others. We do it to share our creations uh, with others, and obviously to make money while doing it, right? And so, but but I I like describing authors as entrepreneurs because one thing I found in going through the process of getting two traditional publishing deals now is the best authors identify as entrepreneurs. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard from publishers in interviews when they've been considering making offers on my books, how much they appreciate that I think like an entrepreneur. Like I think I think I'm a I think I'm a good writer, uh but there there are tons of good writers and many many writers that are better than me writing nonfiction today, right? But I think one thing that makes me unique in the market and makes me uniquely valuable in the market is that I'm not just a good writer, but I'm first and foremost an entrepreneur. I think in terms of markets and market size, right? And yeah. <laughs> how to position a product for that market, right? So I, I think very much like a 
like a like a product manager almost, right? Uh, and I think I think in order to be a really successful author in nonfiction or fiction today, you've got to think like that. Like that is how you win. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, social media has enabled us to do that. I mean, right. social. Yeah, I mean, you said you self-published your first two books, and I mean, mm -hmm. I've self-published, and yep. you do have to think. Okay, I'm not thinking in terms of 30 days. I'm thinking 90 days, 120 days beyond that. You know, right. I'm not just thinking what's right in front of my face. Okay, I have to have a launch period. I have to have some buildup. I have to have a platform built. I have to have people invested to share my material. You know, if yep. I'm going to be self-publishing, there's a whole gamut of things that you have to be on top of in order to you know, be successful at that launch. So, so yeah. yeah, I totally, I totally resonate with what you're saying, Jordan. So, yeah. so yeah. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Did you have anything else you wanted to add? No, to that? no, no. Okay. Um, so yeah. So, you know, as far as that narrative then that's around, you know, this, the book writing process, I mean, yeah. for you, so this was like, you were saying, this is, you know, a collection of interviews that you made and everything. Yeah. And you thought, okay, this is a pretty good idea. I can put this down on paper. And as far as being able to share it with other people, um, was there any kind of like part of this where you went, this is, this is, this is too hard. Like this is, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to finish this thing. Uh, like what was that process like? Cause I know that many writers and authors face this, they face this fear of not just rejection, which I think is just universal, but this fear of I'm never going to actually finish this thing. It's just too daunting. It's too big. Uh, man. Yeah. I'll be honest. Not really. I, 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 <laughs> I, I, I'll say this with, Never a fear that I wouldn't finish it, right? I, I will say Master of One was way harder to write than Called to Create for reasons that 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 I I, I can explain. Uh, but yeah, never never a sense that it wasn't gonna get wasn't gonna get done. And I think a lot of that is just due to the fact that like I. Uh, you know, prior to writing those books, I've had a lot of experience just accomplishing very big things and using really good project management methodologies to do so. So I'm a huge believer uh, in David Allen's getting things done methodology. I, I tell any young person, if you master the GTD workflow, uh, you will be exceptional. True, like truly exceptional compared to anyone else that you compete with in any line of work. Like it is, it is the silver bullet uh, for being remarkable as a person and as a professional, right? And there's lots of time management books, but I, I found that GTD is by far the most. Uh, it's it's life changing. It's 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 rewiring your brain and how you think to make sure that you're capturing all of your actions and playing your time really well and planning your projects really well. So because of that, I, I don't feel like I ever got to this place of like, oh, I'm not going to finish this book. Mm -hmm. That said, uh, like like I alluded to before, Master Bone was way harder to write. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking a lot about why. And I, I, I really think it came down to the fact that, you know, with Call to Create, when I was writing Call to Create, I was running a my own consulting business. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I was, I, I, I could basically work on the book and think about the book whenever I wanted to, right? It was, it was just, I could take long walks uh, in downtown Tampa where uh, I work and make creative connections between ideas. But with Master of One, I started writing it when I was working, you know, 80 hours a week or whatever it was. <laughs> running this uh, tech startup that had millions of dollars invested in it. We had 50 whatever contractors and employees. Like mm -hmm. it, it, it was just impossible. There was no mental bandwidth to make creative connections between ideas. That made it really, really hard, yeah. really hard. Like I think as a writer, you've got to have 
plenty of white space mentally to be able to make those really creative connections, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, right? Like solitude and silence and just long walks are like really critical to that process. And uh, somehow though, I I actually think Master of One's going to end up being a better book, but I I don't, I honestly don't know how, like I can't take credit. (laughs) credit for that because i i really did feel through the process like man this is a lot harder just because i didn't have that white space do you think there was any kind of added expectation as well maybe like coming off of call to create totally totally yeah oh yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) yeah i think it's you know it's the fear of the sophomore slump uh and it's also like there's a lot more pressure because um you know I was with a bigger publisher. It was a bigger deal. It was a much bigger advance. Uh, so there's a lot of pressure that comes with that. And frankly, I think I think a lot of that pressure is good, right? Like I had so many – I've been overwhelmed at the impact that Call to Create has had in people's lives. Like, like truly overwhelmed. Like people like you that have these great podcasts, that have these great careers coming to me and saying, hey, like I highlighted the heck out of this book is <laughs> – is is incredible to hear and so you you get to this place where you just really don't want to let your readers down right like you don't want to you don't want to disappoint your readers when you set up when you have this first and i I really consider it's not the first book it's the first traditionally published book but when you have this first book for the majority of your readers it's it's the first book of yours that they've read uh and you've set the bar so high there's tremendous pressure on like how in the world are we gonna how in the world are we gonna clear this Uh, and also the the tendency to to just be like real with yourself and 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 being honest about is this better than the last one you know you you don't want to market it as such if it's not such uh but i legitimately believe it's a better book i think it's a bigger more difficult idea uh that i wrote about master of one i think it's a more controversial idea which i think will make Mm. it more fun like I, I think the people who love master of one are going to be obsessed with master of one uh, and the people who hate it are going to love it and will never read anything else i ever write but hey i mean you know whatever uh it'll, it'll be a lot of fun awesome so you've drawn in this massive audience and now you're going to polarize them with the with the release of this other book that's exactly what we're gonna do yeah, yeah. That's, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. You know, I thought it was interesting what you mentioned about project management and yeah. having a good handle on that because sure. I think uh, there's a lot of authors and writers that think of writing as very, you know, on a whim. You know, they're, yeah, they're, yeah, yeah. They're, you know like inspiration just comes over me and sure. I just do it. And it's not so much that the goal is the most important thing, but rather the process is the most important part of that. Now, I know that you're, you, you're writing nonfiction um, yeah. primarily, and I know that fiction and, and nonfiction folks I've talked to kind of deal with this in some way, but yeah. would that be, I mean, I, you kind of already made, uh, made an endorsement for this, but would you endorse to any writer, any kind of new author, look, learn how to prioritize your days, project management, all kinds of things like that. I mean, that, I'm, I'm, I mean, I think, <laughs> I think it's like critical. Like when, when I hear authors telling me like, uh, I, I think I think this is common for authors that that just sit around and wait for inspiration and then write. I, 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 I no wonder it takes you five years to finish a book. Like that's that's uh, uh, yeah. I, I have I have this I have this friend of mine who um, I, I he's he's a better writer than me. Uh, he's a fantastic writer, but um, you know he's a, he's an admitted procrastinator, right? So he had, he had a book deal uh, around around the same time I did. Uh, and he waited until like the last two months to write this thing. And he had, he had to end up like going away from his family for like six weeks to like lock himself in a room and like get it done. And I'm like, that's one way to do it. Uh, but, but I think, I think if, 
if you're following, you know, one of the things I love about, I, I'm going to harp on GTD. I'm like the biggest evangelist for getting things done by David Allen. Mm-hmm. You know, it, one of the biggest things that David Allen preaches is this idea that, of, of, of taking really, really, really big projects and breaking them down into much smaller bites, much smaller next actions. Uh, you can't do a project, right? Like, a, a, a project, you know, for, so for a writer, uh, a project is finish the manuscript for Master of One. You can't visualize that. That's not something tangible and actionable that you can actually go do right now. Mm-hmm. What I can do is I can sit down and make an outline for Chapter One, right? right? Like that is right. highly practical, highly actionable, and something that I could probably do in my next ninety-minute block, right? That right. I sit down and execute, right? So I, I think it's like critically important for writers to to really get that. That, that said. I do think there's a place for um, – I think all writers feel this. There are certain times in which we are more inspired than others, right? And so while I think it's important to be disciplined and to write every single day, uh, and I think it's even helpful to write at the same time every single day, what, whether or not you feel inspired. No, I agree with I that. I do think there's a lot of room for when you do feel inspiration to write until you don't. Like just write as much as you possibly can because those moments are – totally totally magical uh for lack of a better word like i I don't know a better way to describe it like it's just um i i mean you get it you're a writer like i i don't know how to explain that like you you, and i and i i think i think it's unwise to like not capitalize on that right if you if you have time to do it and you sense inspiration yeah sit down and write like crazy but don't let that be the only time that you write Mm -hmm. otherwise you're you're not going to really have a lot of control over the you know timeline in which that book's going to kind of come to fruition. <laughs> no, for sure yeah. not. I mean, I think it's yeah. interesting. Uh, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with maybe Jerry Jenkins' work, the, the Guild, his Writer's Guild. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, I remember listening to him a long time ago, how he said that he would not write when the hour, between the hours of when his family was awake, mm. uh, he would only write after hours until his first, until his first book was done. Uh, and that was how he prioritized himself because he knew that was when he would be kind of like his mind would be set. Yeah. Uh, so we wouldn't have to be, okay, I, I got to be husband right now. I got to be dad right. right now or friend, brother, whatever. This would just be time when everyone's asleep, everyone's in bed, and now I can just focus on what I'm doing. And, and honestly, I think that's a good way to start it. And that's, I think a lot of writers don't really start out that way. They just kind of go, oh, I have the next 30 minutes. You know, right, I, right, I'm going right, to sit down right. and crank something out. You know, I'm going to make right, sure. Right, right, right. And it might start that think, way. You know? Sorry, to, I, I'm nope. going to take this on a couple of different rabbit trails. The other thing, too, is like I think a lot of writers – I see this a lot in nonfiction, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of writers uh, just sit down and start writing in – prose and full length, you know, paragraphs. And, and, and yeah. I think it's a huge mistake, right? I, I, you know, C.S. Lewis, who is one of my all time favorite authors, um, had a very simple process that he executed when he was writing. He used to say all the time, he's like, know exactly what you want to say, right? Number two, say it. And then number three, say it well, right? But, but the first step is knowing what in the world you want to say. And so I think a lot of writers, when they think about writing, they think that that writing is actually sitting down and writing in full paragraphs. I would argue that outlining and getting clear on what you want to say is 85% of the energy of writing. Not probably probably not the time, but it's at least 50% of my time mm-hmm. writing. You know, when, when so when I, you know, I'll take Master of One as an example. When I was writing Master of One, I mean, there's months and months of just reading and collecting ideas and doing interviews and getting all the pieces of the puzzle in the box, right? Mm-hmm. 
But but then the real work of writing is in taking those puzzle pieces, making creative connections between them, and then outlining exactly what you want to say. And I, w- I always tell writers, when I, I know when I am ready to actually get out of Ever- an Evernote outline and get into a Google Doc and start writing when my outlines are so detailed that I just naturally am writing in full sentences, right? But until then, you, you got to be able to read an outline uh, I, I use this test a lot. Like I'll give this to a member of my team or I'll give it to my wife. I'll give my wife the outline or my friend an outline and say, hey, do do you get what I'm trying to say in this chapter? Is it crystal clear? Is the argument really solid? Right. Mm-hmm. And if not, like I'm not I'm not ready. I'm not ready to open up a Google Doc yet. That's kind of the criteria I use. That's, that's awesome. Um, to that point, then, as far as having a team, I mean, how many people yeah. does it take to go into getting a good launch on a book? I mean, because oh I think- my goodness. <laughs> oh, goodness! Oh man! Um, literally hundreds. Like I, I really, I, I actually believe that. Not like full time staff. Obviously, right. I don't have a payroll of right. you know ten million dollars annually. I'm gonna um, throw out some uh, you know uh, advertisements for people want to join my lunch team. Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, but I mean. I've actually been thinking a lot about this over the last uh, over the last week. I've got a call with with the team at Random House that's managing Master of One tomorrow, and I've been prepping for that. And, um, it is literally hundreds of people. I mean, I think between you, know, you get your launch team, obviously, which you know people place some arbitrary caps on the number of people on a launch team, which I think is like so silly. Like cap it based on criteria, right? If you got people who are fired up. And have more than a dozen people to like to, <laughs> to like share your book with. They should be on your launch team. Like I, I think it's like so silly uh, to, to to cap those things. Um, but um, yeah. So I mean, it's it's the launch team. It's the endorsers. Uh, and I think like really taking the time to cultivate those relationships is really, really, really right. critical. Right. It's not something that you can do a month before the book drops. Like I'm doing it. I have been doing it for you know a couple of months now, and my book doesn't come out for another eight eight months, nine months, eight months, something like mm-hmm. that, right? So, being methodical early on about that is like really, really important. Uh, you know, but when I say my team, I mean I've got a couple of people. So right now, my team is a couple of part time people. That's it, right? Uh, they're contractors. They're not W two employees. Um, so I mean, my team as an author is like pretty lean, uh, especially compared to teams that I've had in, 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 you know, companies that I've run before. Uh, but, but the larger team is literally hundreds of people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was talking to a gentleman, I, uh, Austin Gohn, who just, uh, published a book back in March and he had over a hundred people that he was kind of depending upon as far as helping share his book launch. Yeah. After it was yeah. done. And I just went, that's awesome. That's great. You know, as far as, because that's, what's going to take, you know, to get the word out because it's not, it's not just this process of, you know, you've built something because books are a little bit more organic in a sense yeah, of, oh, totally. you know, ideas, very, very social products. Yeah, yeah. Very social products. The ideas are like, you know, yeah. almost like sticky paper. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like sure. Get, you know, get stuck to someone and then I want to share it with somebody else. It gets stuck to them. You yeah. know, so, uh, you know, I think there definitely is a process like you're saying of, making sure you have enough of those people in place that when the time comes, they're actually going to, you know, proclaim yeah. it to everybody. So it's exactly right. And, and one, one thing I learned, uh, I, I don't think we did a great job of this with called to create. I mean, listen, we had a great launch team for called to create. I'm excited for it to be even better for master of one. And I'm not talking about the people who were in it because the people we got were great, but I think 
when we were organizing the launch team for Call to Great, I was really concerned with the numbers, right? So not number of people, but like how many, how many social media followers do these people have? Do they have enough to like be in the launch team? It's like, it actually doesn't make sense. Like at the end of the day, like everybody is going to have 150 friends on social media. Yeah. That's a lot of people, right? Like a relatively large number of people yeah. when all you're giving that launch team member is a free advanced copy of the book. <laughs> if they convert, you know, five percent of their friends and less than that it's yeah. worth it right yeah. and so um i've been thinking a lot less about numbers and a lot less about and a lot more about enthusiasm enthusiasm right it's the you know, chick-fil-a talks a lot about you know raving fans internally in their cor corporate culture right and i think that's the concept that, that that's what you're looking for. You're looking for the people who are most excited about your work. It's the people that email you after you send out your email newsletter or an announcement about your next book. It's the yeah. people that, you know, without any prompting are already sharing your stuff on social media. Like don't forget about, even if that person only has, you know, 50 Twitter followers, engage that person, thank that person and ask for their help. Right. And be explicit about it. Don't just ask, Hey, help me promote my book, but tell them exactly what you want them to do. Hey, I want you to read the book by this date, write a review on Amazon on this date and share with your friends on this date. Right. Like right. It's just, you know, lead them well, uh, and, and, and give explicit, you know, calls to actions along the way. That's awesome. And is that a lot of the stuff that you kind of personally are doing, or is that also part of like the team or is that? Yeah, kind of, mm -hmm. my team helps a lot with that. So, um, I, I do, I do a lot of it personally. So for example, with the launch team, like I will be personally crafting, uh, kind of the calendar of communications to that team, mm -hmm. right? So when are we reading the book? What deadline am I giving the launch team to read it by? What day are we posting reviews on Amazon, which is obviously day one, right? It's January 21st. Right. Uh, you know, when are we going to – like we're, we're doing a huge pre-order campaign for Master of One. We're giving like a really, really big sweepstakes we're doing for the book, um, which I won't I won't say what it is yet, but it will be it'll be big. It will be bigger than Call to Crates, and Call to Crates was like massive. What for a second, it was like a I thought I was going to get the exclusive. For you were going to get the exclusive. No, 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 not yet. Not yet. Oh, wait. Uh, but yeah, so I'm doing a lot of that personally. I will say I do I do get my team to help uh, help out on managing that launch team. So we manage the launch team via Facebook, a uh, private Facebook group like most authors do. Mm -hmm. um, and so I will use my my team to monitor that more closely than I can day in day out when I'm doing interviews and doing all that other stuff. Because a lot of times your launch team will be asking you for stuff like, hey. Uh, I'm doing a blog post. I would love, you know, this particular type of photo of the book for the blog post, right? And so my team can like chime in and respond much quicker than I can on that stuff. Yeah, good question. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, I mean, because one of the things too I've talked about a lot on on my podcast singularly is having kind of a community around you. I mean, it doesn't have to be like your launch team as in what you're saying, but it's other creatives that are within the same circle that are doing similar things and they have their own audiences, they have their own platforms, they're also building their own and how imperative it is to kind of get involved in these clusters so that when something does get launched or something is going to get pushed out that you kind of have this group that's already kind of waiting and yeah. in, 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 you know, in the wings for it. So critically, it's critically important. I mean, when I, when I, when I, self-published my first book uh you know i set a goal of hitting a couple of um amazon bestseller lists hitting the number one spot and even, even then i mean i wouldn't consider that I, I didn't call that a launch team at the time it was 150 of my closest friends and professional allies that i emailed at 8 a.m or whatever time it was to say hey buy the book right now this second this hour you've got to buy it right now uh right so yeah it's, it's the same you know it, it doesn't 
I think people think in order to have a launch team, it's got to, you get a, that sounds like such a traditional publishing thing to do. And you got to have a huge list, like not at all. Like this could be the 10 people you go to church with or the, you know, 20 people you play poker with, like whatever. Right. Um, Yeah. I think we overcomplicate a lot of these things. Right. (laughs) It's you're, I mean, again, coming back to this idea of like authors as entrepreneurs, right? Like I think, authors think like book publishing is like so unique it's not like you're bringing a product to market and like what matters is finding early adopters who love the product and will share it with others it's no different than any other product or company right like it's the same exact thing like find people who are addicts early on and give them more of your stuff and keep giving them more stuff and keep thanking them because they are what's going to drive the success of your business I think that's really good. I mean, that's that's just great. I think in general, Jordan, as a good rule of thumb, uh, you know, just in terms of any kind of interaction that you might be having with anyone, because like you were saying, worrying about the numbers, does this person have fifty followers or do they have five thousand? I mean, yeah. the person today who has fifty followers, maybe a year from now could have five thousand. You know, could yeah. be in, could be in that position that totally. You know, this person was totally sold out on an idea that you had worked on, and now a year later, here they are. I mean, yeah. we don't know, and what you said is more important is the enthusiasm. You know, the fact yeah, that that's this, exactly. Right. You know, that I've this, seen that. I've seen that so many times. So many times. I'm, I'm thinking of a guy right now, who man, this guy. Uh, I've been sharing his stuff. He's been following and sharing my stuff for three years. And three years ago, I think he probably had you know thirty thousand Instagram followers, which was a lot, right? Like that's yeah, a lot yeah, to begin with. Uh, <laughs> but today he's almost four hundred thousand Instagram followers. Yesterday, this guy's. A freaking machine. He's like one of my. He's like one of my favorite people to follow on Instagram. His name is Stefan Coons. Uh, if you if you're curious, uh, but yeah, I mean he's. I mean, if, if, if he if he signs on with this next book, if he gets excited about Master of One, he'll be he'll drive more sales of that book yeah. than than people that you have heard of. You've never heard of Stephen Coons, but they, but the people you have heard of that will endorse the book, they'll probably drive less sales than this guy will, right? And like it's yeah. just it's just being a being a human being and like mm-hmm. connecting with people early on who are gonna drive success and, and also just being very generous with them, right? I think. Yeah. I think there's just a good rule of thumb for authors to be exceedingly generous uh, with their time and how they leverage their platform for others uh, over time. So for sure, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking about how I actually learned about your book called to create and it was someone that is a part of one of my creative circles had shared it on social media and said, Hey, for any of you creatives out there, you're looking for some inspiration. Uh, You know, here's a book coming out by someone I've been following for a while. Here you go. Wink, wink. Uh, and I looked at it and I started reading the synopsis and I said, you know what, I, I need to, I need to get this thing. And the timing yeah. of my life was good that I was getting it then. Yeah. How, as awesome. far, how, as far as like a writer does timing matter, you know, as far as the idea and as sure. far as getting it out there. Cause I think there's also the pressure of this is a great idea, but man, yeah. I gotta get this thing out sooner than later because yeah, 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 yeah. I think I'm going to miss the boat or something. That's a really good question. It's hugely important, right? And for some books more so than others. So for example, like politics is like a great example, right? Like if you're writing, you know, Robert Mueller's The Mueller Report, right? It's like pretty critical to come out now. Like that's not going to be very relevant after Election Day 2020, right? Um, but, uh, but no, I mean, even in, even in, I, I it's hugely important. At, again, as with any business, mm-hmm. 
you can have the best idea in the world. You can have the best team in the world. You can execute near flawlessly, although nobody executes flawlessly. But if the market timing is wrong, yeah. it doesn't really matter, right? Like mm-hmm. MySpace is a pretty good example. Friendster is a pretty good example. These social networks, mm-hmm. you know, pre the ubiquitous smartphone just couldn't make it, which they, they, they may have had they had they launched, you know, post or near 2008 or near 2004 as Facebook is starting to rise with the rise of the smartphone era. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think timing is critically important. And a lot of times what you'll see is, uh, you know, once one book comes out on a topic, you can guarantee and does well for the next five years, there's going to be a lot of other copycats. Okay. And so it's not critical that you're first. I actually don't think that's important. In fact, being first a lot of times is uh, is is bad. Like you want the, the you want the somebody else to go before you to validate the market, right? But right. you also don't want to be fifth, right? right. You want to be somewhere <laughs> on the on the cusp of that wave, and that it's really really. Man, it's really hard to like time that well. And and additionally, the traditional publishing world isn't very conducive to being able to ride those market wave timings, right? Because if you if you see a book today that's doing really well and you decide, oh, I want to ride this wave of this trend, you know, if you started today working on your proposal, working on getting an agent, maybe you have a deal in six months and the book doesn't come out for another 12 to 18. Yep. That's tough. <laughs> that is really, really, really it tough. Uh, so you got to be good at And honestly, if you're in that situation and it's something super timely, you really should self-publish, right? right? right. Uh, I, I personally have become a huge fan of traditional publishing. Uh, which a lot of people think is odd given how entrepreneurial I am, but I, I actually am a huge, huge fan of, of publishing partners. Uh, but yeah, sometimes it, it does like, for example, I had an idea for a book. I actually don't think I'm, I'm 99% certain I'm not going to do it. There's still 1% chance I will. I have a concept, uh, of uh, of a book that really should come out before election day. It's it's really not about politics, uh, but there's a really really strong hook, uh, kind of with the election. Uh, but there's no way I could get that book done with a traditional publisher before you know July when I would want that book to release. So if I do it, it will be self published. But mm-hmm. I, it's not gonna happen. I'm gonna have to give the idea to somebody else to publish because I, I don't I don't I don't have the time. Well, now I'm super intrigued. You know, after oh, after, after all of that, I'm super intrigued, and I'm not trying to plant a seed or anything to say, hey, you got to do this. You want but, the concept? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So here's here's the rough concept. So. Okay. Uh, and I'm particularly interested in it because I, I, I started my career in politics. So uh, one of the few real jobs I ever had, I, I ran a campaign when I was 17 years old, a uh, successful campaign citywide here in Tampa, kind of caught the political bug, stayed on that path for a long time, was in the Bush White House in the Office of Political Affairs. Um, but you know, a, 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 as a Christian, you know, the issues that are really important to me, uh, you know, the issue of life, right? I am pro-life, right? Yeah. Um, I think, I think the church's response to these issues for the last few decades, at least has been, oh, well, if we hire, if we elect the right person who appoints the right judges, everything else will work itself out. But that's like not how real change historically has happened, right? I, I, if you take the abolition movement, you, 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 know, you take the anti-slavery movement, right? The anti-slavery movement in the U.S. really started to catch steam when Uncle Tom's Cabin 
was released and gained wild popularity uh, across the U.S. So there was this groundswell. Hearts and minds started to change. The electorate started to change. And then legislative change followed thereafter, right? Yep. And I actually think that's like a really, really good playbook. So it fits in really well with Call to Create. The way that you – bring about significant cultural change is not by legislating it. It's by creating more culture yeah. that changes hearts and minds and, and, and will eventually lead to legislative change mm-hmm. long-term. Right. I, I, I would even argue this is what the LGBT movement has done. Right. I mean, for there's lots of really good long reads about how Hollywood was super intentional about placing gay characters in movies and in TV shows. And, uh, you know, over time, that changed the electorate's mind about these issues and led to legislative change. So I think there's like a really proven playbook there. And I'm yeah. so sick and tired of. I, so I'm not a Republican anymore. I don't know what I am uh, politically. Um but I, and, and a big part of the reason why is I'm so sick and tired of um, conservatives' response to these cultural changes being, well, the only solution is if, if, if we have the right Supreme Court justices, we will change the law of the land. That's so naive. Uh, it, it's unbelievably naive. Yeah. Uh, and uh, But listen, I get why politicians peddle it, right? It's a great way to raise money and – votes but it's just not the way that big cultural changes have happened in the past we do it by writing the next great novel about life uh we do it about you know by by making a great movie or or building great businesses and and nonprofits that are tackling these issues so that's really that's a concept no that's really cool i i you know it's the boots on the ground thinking that is truly where it comes down to i mean the idea of uh you know creating culture, changing it is a boots on the ground, ideas generating, sharing yeah. them. Um, you know, that was way more than I thought you'd give me actually. So I'm really, <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, so this is the book that, that there's like almost a 0% chance that I'll write. If you love it, right away. And, uh, and maybe, maybe, uh, maybe I'll consider it. I, the only format I've thought about is like a, it's like literally a pamphlet, right? right. It's almost like the Federalist Papers and like Hamilton, right? Like literally a pamphlet that we circulate, you know, across the country. I don't think you can even call it a book, but yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, that's awesome. It's like an essay, I guess. <laughs> there, yeah. there you go. I'll look for it, Jordan, in the coming days. I will look for it for yeah. months, I should say. I'll look for it in the coming months. We'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, yeah. That was great, man. So so shifting gears a little bit here, I wanted to talk a little bit more about Call to Create specifically yeah. and about how, you know, we've talked about entrepreneurship. We've talked about the writing process and just a little bit about failure and whatnot. Um, how do we overcome our fears? Like what would be some good ways of, you know, kind of overcoming those fears like rejection or that, you know, I, I'm not going to get this idea out in time, you know, things like that. Uh, because I think you made some good points in the book about overcoming fear in general, uh, that I did want to touch on, uh, because I think that also bleeds into just writing in general and just the idea of, like, I think, uh, it was Hemingway who has the quote of, you know, writing is simple. You just sit down at a typewriter and bleed. You know, right. so so, right. so knowing that there's so much gusto of a person that's going into this work, there is a lot of like, oh, no, potential backlash that I, I don't know if I can weather that storm, you know. So. Yeah, sure. So uh, it's a great question. Uh, I, I, I'll give I'll give a couple of tips, two very practical one. You can take it or leave it and decide whether or not practical for you uh the first is i've already touched on it just discipline right i think i think you overcome fear by practicing 
a lot and, and just getting in the habit of facing those fears, right? And sitting down at your laptop every day. Yep. Uh, so for me, like when I'm writing, uh, I, I, it's usually my first 90 minute block of the day. I break my day into big chunks of 90 minute blocks of time, right? And so typically it's my first 90 minute of the block of the day. I sit down and I write, right? With zero distractions, zero push notifications. I just crank away, right? So I think that's a good way of overcoming fear is just getting the practice of confronting that fear. Hmm. Secondly, I think another way to do it is I think a lot of times for writers, you know, the fear for the writer is fear of rejection. And I think it's it's because a lot of writers will write an entire book before they get any feedback on it, right? And yeah, I would be scared of that too. That's like a terrifying prospect. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I, 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 I give more advice to nonfiction writers than fiction writers because I don't understand fiction at all. I, I, I read very little of it actually. Um, but for nonfiction writers, like that, that's the easiest thing to get rapid feedback on. So a master of one is about how to master anything. Uh, and that you've chosen to really sink your teeth into. And one of the best principles of mastery is uh, rapid and deliberate feedback, right? So every time you write a chapter, get feedback on it immediately. Even before you start writing the book, get feedback on it, right? So for Master of One, it was actually uh, – before it was Master of One, I had this this other concept for the book that was kind of similar. So I basically had two book proposals. I sent it out to 50 of my most loyal readers to my weekly – uh, weekly newsletter. And I was like, Hey, one, is this a book worth writing? Uh, and two, if so, which of these two paths do I take? Right. So getting feedback just early and often, uh, I think helps assuage a lot of that fear, right? Cause if you're, you know, 50,000 words in and you haven't got any feedback, I would be terrified too. Um, the third, and again, this, uh, you, you, you know, you could debate how practical this is, but you know, as a Christian, uh, m- my ultimate um, way of fighting fear is recognizing that uh, my career as an author, my career as an entrepreneur, and my relative success in those endeavors does not define who I am. Mm. And I think that's a that's a really, really, really hard thing to grasp as a, a writer whose name is on the cover of a book. It's very easy to equate the success of the book with your worth and your value as a person. We all want to be successful. That's a good thing. I think it's a really good thing. It makes us ambitious. I think ambition is a good thing. Uh, but when your identity and your very sense of who you are is attached to the success or failure of your next book or of your next venture, failure is devastating because it is a referendum not just on the product or the project but on who you are as an individual. Oh, yeah. And as a Christian – and I, man, I have wrestled with that. I really, really wrestle with that throughout my career, and uh, I have, I have found that the only definitive answer to that problem uh, is who Jesus Christ says I am. So, as a Christian, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He came to Earth and died for me. Uh, that and says that I am, I am a child of God if I believe in Him. That's radical. Uh, and, and, and that identity outweighs anything else that the world might say uh, I am as an author. So uh, for those of you who are not Christians, you could totally tune out everything I just said. Uh, but but honestly, I, I would encourage you not to. Like I think 
I think this is a big problem for any for everybody. I think if we're really honest, um, you know, we all struggle with this idea of where we find our worth, and and finding it in what we do is like the least secure thing in the world. That is that is uh, not a stable way to live your life and build your sense of worth and identity. So if it's Christianity, great. If it's something else, I would encourage you to find something. I, I would argue that Christianity is the only solid thing that you really take to the bank. Uh, but but find something more solid than your work to build your identity on. No, that's really good. That's really good. Um, I mean, I I can definitely resonate with that. You know, just the idea of my name is on a book and that's me out there. That's not, you know, Jesus's name necessarily. Yeah. It's my name and that's going right. to be open to scrutiny. Exactly it's going right. to be open to feedback. It's going to be open to all kinds of critique, all those kinds of things. So there is a layer of personal, uh, you know, you're, you're, you could take it personally, basically. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, that can... <clears throat> that could kind of hinder that pursuit. Sure. And I, and I wanted to say too that one of the things that and keeping on this this theme I think in the church yeah. um, is one of the things and I I don't know if you paraphrase it in the book or not but you're talking about this divide between the pulpit and the pews. Yeah. And this uh, idea out there that the greatest thing we can ever do as sort of Christian entrepreneurs is to one day be a pastor or plant a church and, you know, speak to the masses every Sunday, things like that, and totally poking a hole in that kind of ideology and saying, yeah. no, actually the greatest thing that I can do is what God wants me to do, yeah. which could be start a business, it could be, you know, yeah. working at XYZ company, it could be writing for the rest of my life or whatever it is. Yeah. I thought that was really something uh, that I hadn't really seen put in that perspective quite yeah. yet. Which sure. I, which also was very glaring to me in some sense because I went, yeah. why haven't I heard this before? Right, right. right, right. <laughs> right. So, you have the same response a lot of readers did. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I think this is a struggle for Christians and non-Christians. I think mm-hmm. for, I think all of us get this message of like, okay, if we really want to do something meaningful with our lives, business can't be the answer. You'll go work for an NGO or you'll go, you know, start a nonprofit in your hometown or, you know, go volunteer and feeding the homeless. And those are good things. Those are things I I think we should be doing. I think we should be encouraging. But um, I I think we're really like kidding ourselves if we don't think that our work as authors uh, is meaningful. Like we are, Jesus talks a lot about loving your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean, right? Like loving your neighbor as yourself as a writer means just writing the best book you possibly can because you like good books. C.S. Lewis said this all the time. He said, you know, we do not need uh, more Christian books. (laughs) We need more (laughs) Christians writing good books. I couldn't agree more, right? There's this coffee shop right around the corner from my house that I go to because it's the only game in town, but I actually hate it uh, because <laughs> it's like so glaringly quote unquote Christian. You literally walk mm. in and there's a huge mural on the wall with a Bible verse painted on it. And if I wasn't a Christian, I would feel so uncomfortable there. Mm. And it makes me angry because, you know, the, the coffee is good and the service is good and the place is beautiful. And I'm just like, just be that. Just make the best cup of coffee you possibly can. That is loving your neighbor mm-hmm. as yourself. And if that uh, brings about opportunities to share more deeply who you are, great. Uh, but if not, that's okay too. You know, lo- lo- love your neighbor as yourself was a complete sentence. Jesus did not say, love your neighbor as yourself so that you could tell people about me. He just said, love your neighbor as yourself, period, full stop, right? Uh, so um, I, I, yeah, I, I just, you know, I, I think 
I think a lot of times we think that the only way that we can have meaningful work is if we are mm. constantly talking about the why behind what we do or constantly serving the poor. And I just don't think that's mm. I don't think that's true. I think we 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 mm. serve people really well when we write great books and we create great businesses and create great products uh, you know that serves people that serves people well. And I think that's all really good as well. Um, I think it all comes down to a lot of the heart posture, you know, the motivation, yeah. you know, like what is the motivation behind what I'm doing? Yeah. You know, so as far as what you were saying, you know, putting together all these different stories and interviews that you had and then saying, okay, this could actually be a good book now. Yeah. You know, there yeah. may have, there may have not even been, I mean, probably there was, but as far as the vision that was overarching everything, now the motivation is I could share this with people and people could really yeah. take something from this. Yeah. Right. That, I mean, that's exactly right. And yeah. I think that's the only like sustainable motivation for our work. Like if I had, if I had said, Oh man, this is a way for me to make money, which all you authors are laughing because there's very little money in directly in writing books. Uh, but you know, that, that, that would have been very, uh, very short sighted. Right. I mean, I could have made, you know, good beer money in the short term in the launch of called the great, but it's not near the impact for me personally. And the gratification for me personally, having people like you, Josh come to me, 18 months after this book's been on shelves and say, Hey, this book had a big impact on my life. Like that, that's so much more valuable and rewarding than any, uh, you know, financial gain that I had from that book. So that's great, man. That's great. Speaking of profit. I mean, you have a chapter in the book called the purpose of profit. Sure. And you're literally talking about, you know, what do we do with our money? Uh, you know, as we're going through these ventures, you know, like what are we supposed to do with them? And, and I, you know, I kind of wanted to talk on that a little bit because, you know, as an author, like you were saying, you know, the, the money that's out there to make, I mean, there's, there's almost like a, like a quick gradient, you know, like those yeah. that can get very successful very quickly sure. and, you know, and those that are kind of teetering, you know, and trying to get into that space. Um, what do we do with ourselves then when we do become profitable? You know, like what yeah. are the things that we do with those profits uh, yeah, that, sure. we'll, that we'll feed back? Yeah, I'll make this quick because uh, I'm I'm running out of time. But oh, yeah. I think you know I think a lot of times we think that, especially I, this is spoken a lot in the church, right? That the only you know honorable use of profits is to give it away. Yeah. I think that's like really small thinking. Like I think that is a good use of profits, right? But I think if if you're really ambitious for your business as a writer, right, and you really believe that you're serving others through your work, then a really good use of profit is reinvesting it back into your business, right, so that you can grow and so that you can bring the next book to market and reach even more people and use that money for advertising or marketing or pay your employees more, whatever it might be. I mean, I think, again, Arthur Guinness, I think, is a really good example. Go read up on Guinness and how he treated his employees. He's a remarkable example. You know, he gave away a lot of his wealth. But he also reinvested in his company and and served his employees really well in the process. So, yeah, I think uh, I talk more about this in Call to Great. But I, I I think just looking at profit as simplistically as oh I should give it away is like really mm-hmm. missing work in a lot of different ways. So that's yeah, good, hopefully man. that's all. Yeah, no, no, that's great. That's great, Jordan. Um, really appreciate this conversation, man. Yeah, this you is know. fun. Yeah, yeah, happy absolutely. to do it. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, the book is called to create the next book though, which will be Master of One. Uh, yeah. Set to come out January twenty first. Yeah, January twenty first, twenty twenty. Twenty twenty, and as I understand, there's going to be some sweepstakes and other cool things will be surrounding it. Um, yeah, where should we go to find you then? Sure. Or- yeah, very simple. JordanRainer.com. J O R D A N R A Y N O R. dot com. You can sign up for my weekly emails. You can check out Master of One and Call the Great there. And yeah, 
connect with me, shoot me a message. If you really want me to write that book, then I'm probably not going to write. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. I would, love, would love to meet all of you. Most people, a lot of people might email you now and say, hey, I really yeah, want exactly. to really hear that political book that you got, that you want to write mm-hmm. about. So, so yeah. awesome. Well, thank you again, Jordan. This was an absolute pleasure, man. Thank you, Josh. Appreciate it.